welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. The following episode was taped on Friday, August 21st at about 3 p.m. After we taped the broadcast, the governor issued an executive order, which has some bearing on the main topic of the podcast, which was the governor's executive orders on the statute of limitations. Specifically, on Friday, Governor Lamont indicated in an executive order 7000 that the statute of limitations extensions would not apply to non-suit defaults. Um, this will allow us to advance discovery by filing non-suits and defaults, and thus is generally interpreted as a good sign. This is not mentioned in the podcast because the governor's executive order did not come out until after we finished uh, broadcasting. And now, without further ado, the second episode of Pod Ipsa Locator. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this episode of Pod Ipsa Locator. I'm Mike Walsh, and I'm here with the co-host, John Kennedy. And I think we have a really interesting episode today for you. Our subject of discussion is going to be the governor's executive order, which was issued on March 9th. We also have two great guests, uh, CTLA stalwarts, Kathleen Nastry and Jay Nelsinski. But before we begin, just a couple of important podcast announcements. First, our podcast has been expected on Spotify. We've been accepted on the Apple platform. And of course, we're always available on our home platform, which is Podbean. Um, And the second announcement is I'm pleased to report that Judge uh, Jim Abrams has agreed to join us for an episode in September and discuss the issue of uh, jury trials and general trial court administration. So look out for that episode. It's probably two episodes from now. Okay, let's turn to the executive order. Um, John, do you want to kind of give us an overview of what the executive order is? Sure. I'm going to let you talk in a few minutes about how the executive order affects healthcare providers. And I'm going to focus, first of all, on the issues related to statute limitations, because I know a lot of people have a lot of concerns about those. Everybody probably knows this, but the governor issued his executive order, which declared a public health and civil preparedness emergency on March 10th, 2020. And it continues in effect until September 9th, 2020, unless it's terminated by him, and it may also potentially be extended by him. Several days later, actually on March 19th, he issued Executive Order 7G. And the important part of that to us as lawyers for purposes of statute of limitations is that he, quote, used the word suspend, he hereby suspend for the duration of this public health and civil preparedness emergency various statute limitations. So, we're not here to give anybody any legal advice. Let's, let's give that caveat right at the start. But I think that Good all idea. of us, all of us who are CTLA members and have cases pending have to be and or, or preparing to file suit need to be aware of the rules. It would appear that one would have until at least September 9th, if the governor doesn't terminate the order before that, to file suit in cases where even statutes have run. It's an interesting to me that the governor has used the word suspend uh, in executive order. Uh, one of the ish- questions that may arise down the road, I think, is whether or not 
this order is a tolling provision or whether or not it is an extension of the limitations. Believe it or not, I did a little research this morning and looked at some oh my of God. more recent tolling cases. Don't worry, Mike. I had one of my associates really. Oh, well, that's what I figured. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting things about it is that the Flannery case, which is a case about continuing uh, duty of care and tolling, uses exactly that word that in their, in their description of what tolling is. I'm going to quote exactly. Tolling does not enlarge the period in which to sue that is imposed by a statute limitations, but it operates to spend or interrupt its running while certain activity takes place. And so it's interesting to me that the tolling cases use that exact same word, suspend. So I think down the road, we're going to see an argument for sure uh, that, that will be able to be made, whether it's accepted or not, that this interruption of the statute of limitations is actually a tolling provision. There's a couple of other things that I, I think is issue spotters we can talk about. One is whether or not the governor's order applies to things like notices to the municipalities or to the state for highway defects or to the claims commission. I think it, there's an argument that it clearly does. And the other area that a lot of us are worried about is extensions of the statute of limitations under 52-190A, subsection B, which as we all know, provides for a 90-day extension of the limitations in order to investigate a medical malpractice case. That provision specifically says that the 90-day extension will be in addition to other tolling periods. So I think it's pretty clear that an argument can be made that you'll have an additional 90 days beyond the date when the emergency is over. There are lots of scenarios, and I think it's for today's purposes, I don't know that we want to get into them, but there's all kinds of issues that arise. For example, if you were already on a statute of limitations extension and it's run out, what's the effect of that? If you need to file one, if, if the statute is already run, can you still file another statute of limitations extension? There are innumerable arguments, but I, I think that's the, that's, those are the basics right now. And again, I think, and we're not giving advice, but as a cautionary statement, if you can file your case before the statute of limitations would have run, the two years would have run, or if you can file it for sure before September 9th, those would be the, the best advice that you can probably give to. Okay, John, thanks. That's a great overview. Let me just make sure I understand it. So let's say this executive order goes into effect on March 9th, okay? Let's say that I've got a case and the statute expires three months into it, okay? So March, April, May, June 9th, and I don't file. And then we get to September 9th. What happens? On September 9th, do I still have three months left? Or on September 9th, am I dead in the water? Or September 10th, am I dead in the water? I, I don't know the answer to that question, Mike. And again, I would argue that it's a suspension of the limitation. So you might have three extra months. But I think the best advice I could give you would be to file that suit before September 9th, so you don't have to worry about whether or not that is the case. Okay, and I'm just going to add one more confusing part to everything you just set forth so clearly, and then we're going to bring in our guests and discuss these issues. But there's also, in addition to the executive order on the statute of limitations, which you just referred to, there's also an executive order that essentially provides immunity to hospital and other healthcare workers for issues related to treatment um, related to COVID-19. Now, it's not the exact same executive order. It's a different executive order, but it's in the same string of executive orders that were all issued 
pursuant to the declaration of the state of emergency on March 9th, which all of these flow from. And so that's another issue for us to consider when we're talking about these immunities, these you know, these orders and whether or not we want them extended. The immunity, obviously, is something that I think most of us would not want. In a perfect world, Mike, we'd love to get rid of the immunities, but keep the statute of limitations and, extension operable. But I don't think that's going to work that way. Well, we had a guy coming up later who might be able to help us with that kind yeah, of magic. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, let's turn to now our, uh, now that we've laid the groundwork, our guests, and then let's have a general discussion. But um, John, let me turn it over to you for All the right. introduction of Kathleen. I, I want to introduce Kathleen Nastry, who's somebody who needs no introduction. We all know her quite well. You know, Kathleen is a stalwart of our organization. She was the first female president of Connected Trialers Association. She also served in 2017 as the president of the AAJ, which is a feat of amazing proportion. And uh, she still serves on their board. <laughs> And she's a member of all the trial organizations that are led by election only, ACTL, IATL, and ABOTA. And she's obviously gotten some great verdicts. But the one thing I want to talk about quickly is that, that we owe Kathleen a, a great thanks for what she's done for continuing legal education, which is what this program is part of. Over the years, she's been a... Uh, a lecturer and a, at many, many seminars. And for many years, she served as the co-chair of CLA. She laid the foundation for what we do now by uh, really putting out a great foundation for all of us. So yeah, Kathleen, we're looking to you for some, some advice and guidance as to what the future holds with all this <laughs> crazy stuff that's going on. So politically, where do you think we are nationally? You're one of the people we go to to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah, I can well know that I am obsessed with politics. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I can't get enough. And this week was exciting. I'm looking forward to next week to watching the other, the other convention. I want to say two things before I, the fact that you guys are doing this is incredible. It is such a good idea. And I, the, the constant you and Mike have brought to the CLE committee is just, it's so impressive and it's so much fun. I listened to your first <clears> one and I just really think, especially in times when we are feeling sort of isolated, that this is a really nice way to include the way we're continuing with our members. So congratulations for that. Um, the second thing, the fact that I was, I got to be a co-chair of this committee was the best thing that ever happened to me professionally because Michael Koskoff was co-chair. And that's how he and I became very good friends. And it's one of the reader hired me as partners. Mm. All good things happen to co-chairs of the LA I got Walsh. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who got the better end of that deal. I got an associate position, John. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it is a, it is a, it's a great fun committee, but it's also a ton of work. Thank you guys. I appreciate you all the time. Uh, so politics, I'm going to leave to your next guest, one of my best friends and go-to people for advice on politics. I'm going to leave it to Jay, the, what's happening in the Statehouse. In Connecticut, we are blessed with the folks that we have in, in our state legislature, champions of civil justice on both sides of the aisle. And it's one of the reasons that PLA as an organization has been able to thrive. And as I traveled around the country the last couple of years, other trial lawyer groups, I learned that we are among, really among the lucky ones. And that's not been without a lot of work from our past leadership and from folks like like Jay, who have kind of navigated us through these rough waters. So I am a Democrat, and I make no bones about being a Democrat, but I love everyone who loves civil justice. And so if you're a Republican and you're for civil justice, I love you as much as I love the, the Democrats on the other side of the aisle. The hard truth, though, is that nationally, 
um, the Republican Party has not been necessarily the friendliest to issues that are important to us and our clients. And so what's exciting to me coming up in the fall is the idea that we might have a chance in the, the Senate and get a Democratic majority in the Senate, because I think that could really change the, the nature of, of, of the civil justice nationwide. So if I can, I'll just go through a couple of those races maybe and talk about what it looks like should happen. So and you can, guys can jump in anytime you want to ask me a question. Right now, the makeup of the Senate is 53 Republicans, 45 Democrats, and two independents. Those two independents caucus with the Democrats, and so we count them on our side of the equation. So we need, in order to get a, a Democratic majority and to get the gavel out of Mitch McConnell's hands, we need to get at least four seats. And, and if you had asked me or most people, I think, 18 months, 12, 12 months ago, we would have said it's a really hard slog to get to that point. But right now it looks like it is possible. And it's possible because places like Colorado, where John Hickenlooper, who's the former governor, is running, Arizona, where you've got Mark Kelly running, former astronaut and married to Gabby Giffords, we all know was a terrible victim of gun violence, Montana, where you've got Steve Bullock, North Carolina, where you've got Cal Cunningham, Sarah Gideon in Maine, who might be able to beat Susan Collins. These are all races that have gone from kind of toss up to a slight leaning in the Democratic side of the equation. And that I, I take that as good news, but what's remarkable to me, Iowa and Kansas and um, Kentucky, maybe, and Texas and Alaska are also like, they're in the mix. Isn't that incredible? Just, yeah. It is incredible. incredible. And it, it suggests to me a profound shift in the way people are thinking. Now, polls are polls, and anyone who relied on polls in 2016 had her heartbroken. But yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, that right now, things are are looking good for the possibility of a democratic majority. Me, because I am all about civil justice, that is that is a good thing. Yeah, we agree. And, uh, you know, I, I should mention for the podcast, um, today is the day after the Democratic convention just concluded. Um, Joe Biden gave his acceptance speech last night. So it's all really kind of on the top of our minds right now. And uh, Kathleen, you're always the woman in the room where it happens. So uh, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on it. Yeah. yeah and I think one of the things that's, that's really interesting is just the, the idea that in what we consider to do republic states, like Alaska, for heaven's sake. So the guy who's running on the, uh, he's an independent who's running in Alaska uh, against the sitting Republican is a guy named Al Gross. He is a Jewish fisherman, um, orthopedic surgeon. And he's running for the United States Senate. And, he, you know, that's still a Republican leaning, certainly state. But the fact that it's even in the mix is yeah. is really exciting. Well, I'm sure I'm sure Jay is probably sitting on the edge of his seat to jump in here. So, Jay, I'm going to um, I'm going to introduce you at this point. I'm going to unmute you and introduce you and welcome you to the broadcast. For those of you who don't know. Jay Malsensky has been the lobbyist for over 30 years now, right, Jay, for the CTLA? Time flies. Yeah, isn't that incredible? Time flies. But you still look the same. You haven't changed. Um, (laughs) Well, anytime you say you're going to unmute Jay, that's kind of a scary thing. Yeah. (laughs) Right now. We should probably conclude the broadcast and we won't get it in later. (laughs) As I said earlier, I think we need a seven-second delay here. (laughs) But I do want to just... Just say before we get to the issues, Jay, you're really much more than our lobbyist. Uh, you're a member of the organization. You're an attorney. 
I mean, a lot of the lobbyists up at the Capitol are not attorneys, but Jay's an attorney and he's a true believer and he's really become friends, I think, of almost all of us that have gone through the CTLA. So it's really, it's really a pleasure to have you not only on this podcast, but it's a pleasure to have you with the organization, Jay, and thank you for all that you've done. Thank you. Thank you for those kind remarks. Okay. So tell us, Kathleen gave us a national overview. Tell us what's going on at the Capitol right now, Jay. Well, it's kind of interesting. I don't think, you know, because of COVID, I don't think anybody could have predicted or even knows what's what's happening from from week to week at the Capitol. They came back in a couple of weeks ago just to handle, you know, a couple of items, one dealing with uh, absentee ballots to to allow the more widespread use of absentee ballots in this coming election because of COVID. And the other was uh, some criminal justice reform, you know, on the heels of the George uh, Floyd you know, situation. <clears throat> they are talking about coming back again sometime in mid, mid-September. Uh, it, it remains to be seen what will be on that agenda. One, one of the things, as you can imagine, you guys alluded to it earlier, is whether you need legislative approval of some of these executive orders, some 70 some odd executive orders that all expire on September 9th. You know, there's a, one school of thought that is that the governor can just, you know, extend the the emergency on September 9th and all the executive orders, including, you know, giving some limited immunity to those in the, in the medical community, you know, will live on until the until the emergency is over. Um, others are of the view that some of these uh, these provisions need need legislative approval. So, you know, that's all being hashed out as as we as we uh, speak here now. I think with the the issue regarding the extension of the statute of limitations is probably likely to be one which will be ex- extended if the, the governor, you know, extends the emergency. Uh, you know, I, I talked with the governor's counsel the other day, Bob Clark, you know, we, we work with a lot on these types of things. We worked with him on the language of the original immunity uh, for the medical community. And, uh, you know, he's of the mind that the, the judicial department will, you know, kind of lead the charge on where that where that goes and whether they ask the governor to extend that particular executive order. But we'll certainly weigh in on that if we can nail down what our position is. We, we're kind of meeting ourselves or coming around the corner a little bit on this issue, yeah. which is not unusual with our membership. But, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll hash out what our position is and take appropriate action. Hey, have you heard anything about the hospital immunity? I mean, it, it seems to me that right now there is not an emergency state in most Connecticut hospitals. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm in really, I'm in, a, a, in opposition to executive orders. I, I think they subvert the legislative process. And let's face it, the way laws made are made, it's not pretty. But at least the elected officials can be held accountable. There's public debate. And at the end, it's usually compromise, which isn't a bad thing. I don't like it when a governor just comes in and makes 70 laws. Um, you know, and I just don't think that's the way our democracy should work. Now, I understand it. Times of emergency, you have to do it. And in March and April, maybe it was appropriate. But I mean, come on, we're six months out. I mean, and I'm opening this up to everyone now. I mean, what are your thoughts? Should we still have these executive orders, do you think? I don't think we're in the emergency we were in before. As you said, I, I was talking to somebody recently that Yale New Haven that had hardly any patients on uh, intubation in the last week related to COVID. And so I, and, 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 and I'm not pick, choosing them or picking or selecting them out. I think that's the situation throughout the state. So I think it's not the emergency that it was. There, there really isn't a reason 
maybe to continue it. And uh, but I, you know, I leave that to people who are smarter than me and more sophisticated in the healthcare area. But it seems to I be think the only reason that that they may continue it, you know, on the ninth is number one, it's right around the corner, and and I think right. we're 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 still in somewhat of a crisis. Well, I agree with you, John. Not nearly where we were two right. or three months ago. But I think there's this. There's this a lot of fear out there of the kids going back to school and right. and other things happening, businesses going back to work where you could have a spike. So I, I would be surprised if the governor's not thinking, look at let's just extend it and be ready. We can we can end it any time we we choose. You know, it's kinda of like a banana republic, right? Here's seventy new laws. Right. We can haul them all back and give you seventy new more or whatever. But <laughs> You know, I, I think that's that's probably what's driving the notion that we need to extend it is. I think there's a fear that the fall is going to bring, you know, a resurgence of this, of this uh, you know, health crisis, particularly with kids going back to school. And that remains to be seen. Yeah, hey, Jay, I, I, have that... a, I have a question for you about the, um, you know, Kathleen talked a little bit about the swing in the de- to the Democratic side with the Senate races around the country. How do you see our elections here in Connecticut. Do you have any sense that things are changing? I would say one thing that we should be clear about is that Connecticut is not like a lot of the country. Some of the people on the Republican side are good friends of CTLA, but how do you see where things are going, at least at this point, or is it too hard to tell? Well, it's a little hard to tell, but you know, if you can take your lead, kind of the, the sense that, you know, Kathleen gave us about what's happening in Washington in 2016, was a tough election for the Republicans here in Connecticut. You had a you had a Senate that was dead even in eighteen eighteen, and the House was only a, a seven vote majority for the Democrats. I think absent Donald Trump, you know, a lot of people, even Democrats, were of the mind that the Republicans were were going to take one, if not both, houses of the legislature here in Connecticut. But you know, enter Donald Trump, and you know, he's obviously Connecticut is is a very anti you know Trump state you know the, the uh, he did not play well here in in the midterm election washed out in the senate you know it's 24 to 12 in the senate now and in the house you know they have a 35 or 36 you know vote majority so i think if if 2020 is going to be like 2016 it could be a long night for republicans you know the other thing that's just significant irrespective of of you know what the total is is we have three members of legislative leadership that are all choosing to retire that are very good friends of CTLA. You know, the, the um, Speaker of the House, Joe Arasimowitz, has been pretty good to the CTLA. You know, Len Fisano, you know, is, a, is the rare breed now, right? He's a practicing lawyer that sits in the legislature. Right. And he's been a voice of reason, certainly. And then Ms. Claris, similarly, she's a lawyer, practicing lawyer, and she's the leader of the House Republicans. All three of them are leaving, so we're going to have new leadership in those positions, which, you know, is another unknown. In addition to that, 15 state representatives have chosen not to run for re-election. Wow. Uh, so, you know, and, and many of those are friends of ours, as, as we indicated earlier. So, you know, it's going to be, uh, irrespective of what the numbers look like, there's going to be some significant changes just from a leadership standpoint. You know, so we have uh, we'll have a lot of work for us, you know, after November, either way. Yeah, I think one of the things I admire about what you do, Jay, and I've always admired is with all the changeover that's up there, we still may establish a relationship with the new folks. 
get our leadership up there to meet them. Uh, we're able to explain our position in a way that is relative, even though most of them are not lawyers. And we've managed to develop relationships to turnover. Some years more turnover than others, right? But right. we've yep. managed to keep that going. Yeah, we've been, we've been lucky in that regard. And we've also worked, you know, I think the biggest single challenge for a CTLA um, in Connecticut is, uh, is just the diminishing number of attorneys that are in the legislature. You know, when I first started this, you know, 30 plus years ago, it, there were probably 40, 45 of the 186 members of the General Assembly were practicing lawyers, you know, men and women that went up to the legislature, you know, when the time required it, and then they went back to their law offices at night and on weekends to keep up. Uh, but I think it's become increasingly difficult to run a law practice in the legislature. Um, and the few that are left that are doing it would, would, would agree with that statement. It's just really difficult. Connecticut has become more and more of a full-time legislature. You know, it's not, uh, it's not the old linear hole up against the barn and run up the heart from back to the, the flag seat. It's, it's much different now. It's more of a profession which is unfortunate. Jay, let me ask you a question about the executive orders. I, I know you, you know, you got a lot of uh, influence or, or contacts up at the state capitol, but, you know, this is all coming out of the governor's office and it's not, you know, it's on the legislature. So it's not leadership. It's just one man doing these executive orders. I mean, does, do you get the sense that the governor will take any input from anyone on these executive orders or does he just kind of decide it on his own? No, I think they've been pretty good at reaching out to people, you know, that, that have some knowledge in the particular areas that they're looking at, you know, at issuing executive orders. You know, in the case of, of the, uh, you know, the, the medical, the hospital immunity issue, you know, we were one of the groups that was brought into the discussion, both by the governor's office and by legislative leaders, particularly the Judiciary Committee. You know, because uh, the Judiciary Committee chairs, you know, were having discussions with the governor's office about what this immunity would look like, as well as the Public Health Committee folks. So, you know, you, you find a way to make sure you're talking to people that, that are shaping the policy. But I would have to say Lamont has been, you know, pretty good about having an open door and, and, and inviting people to come in or certainly allow people to come in when they, when they ask to provide some input. So I have to say they've done a pretty good job in that regard. Do you think there's any chance that we get the statute of limitations extended, but not the hospital immunity executive order? Um, I would say that, you know, that would probably be driven more by whether they look at the executive orders of time in deciding whether to extend them right. or whether he just, you know, with one fell swoop says we're extending the emergency and thereby all the executive orders are, you know, are accordingly extended. Um, it's anybody's guess where that goes, Mike, at this point in time. I'd say it's a toss-up. And I think regardless of what happens, we're going to see motion practice on the yeah. parts of the executive orders that affect us for, you know, months, if not years after the crisis right. is over. And the other thing is predictively, right, the, the, the antagonists were, were calling for immunity for business community, calling for immunity for the education community, for colleges and universities you know, on the backs of the argument that there's going to be an explosion of litigation in all these areas. Which, you know, typically, we haven't seen that, not, not only nationally, but certainly not in Connecticut. You know, of the number of cases that have, that have been filed but that are COVID-related, you know, almost all of them are, are insurance cases. They're not, they're not tort cases, per se. So I, I think if, if people take the time to look at, you know, the reality of the situation with regard to, you know, what the status of you know, legal action is in Connecticut involving COVID, they're not going to see a lot of plaintiffs' claims sitting there 
against employers or universities or hospitals or the like. That's a great point, Jay. Um, AAJ, Kathleen, as you know well, um, Dan Hinkle has been tracking the COVID-19 related litigation. And the vast majority of lawsuits, everyone was saying, you know, the plaintiff's bar is going to go crazy and file lawsuits like crazy. We haven't. I mean, statistically, there's no evidence of that happening. And the vast majority of lawsuits are insurance companies filing declaratory judgment actions, trying to get out of pain for COVID-related business losses. And Which, um, go Mike, ahead, that's one of the, I was going to say, that's one of the reasons why in Washington, so far anyway, we have not seen a ton of emissions in the COVID relief bills that have passed. But uh, what's very clear is that Mitch McConnell is getting up on that and right. re- has refused to bring a bill to the floor until there are bids in there. But you're correct, Jay, and as well, that across the country, we saw were deck actions by insurance companies primarily um, the other big, big suit that we saw quite a bit of was the um, prisoner release, right. you know, prisoners filing claims to get released because of the, of the COVID issues. But there have been no significant numbers of COVID kind of liability issues filed, which is one of the reasons why it hasn't passed. The other reason, one of the other reasons is that there was a beautifully run Judiciary Committee hearing um, where our own Senator Blumenthal just ripped apart the idea that get back is following COVID. So, you know, so far so good, but we can't, we have to remain diligent on that issue. So Jay, has anybody, has anybody asked for immunity legislation in Connecticut yet that you're aware of? Has anybody pressed? I mean, earlier in, in, in the spring, as I mentioned, the, the colleges and universities were right. banging around looking for it, you know, on the heels of, of the hospitals getting it. The nursing homes wanted more specific immunity applied to them. The colleges and universities were, were scared about what's going to happen when kids come back to, to school. Um, you know, municipalities were looking for immunity because of their educational institutions, you know, coming back and the potential explosion of COVID and, and businesses as well. But I think, you know, the, the, the chairs of the Judiciary Committee and even the governor, the governor on a half a dozen or more occasions has said publicly in response to the question, you know, the people need immunity, the businesses need immunity. He said, look at, you know, we're, we're providing these executive orders. We've set out protocols for people to follow. If they follow them, they're not going to get sued. And guess what? He's right. You know, so we're, we have so, a so little, think, little more time. Um, thank you, Jay. And, I, and that's what you bring up is a, you know, a good example of we in the CTLA spend so much time fighting requests for immunity. I think sometimes, always, you know, people evaluate our legislative effort at the end of the year by what kind of new cause of action we've developed. But, uh, you know, you can't overlook the fact that we in Connecticut have one of the best states in the union. We really do in terms of being victim uh, victim friendly. And a lot of that is because we fight off all of these immunity bills. And Jay, that's a credit to you and to the CTLA effort. Last every question. Year, yep, go ahead. Year start off with one foot in the grave and the other one in a banana peel, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was waiting for Jay to say yeah. that. That's one of my favorite Jayisms. So thank you, Jay. <laughs> we got to meet, little... meet ourselves coming around the corner one. The yeah. only thing we didn't get yeah. was calling in an airstrike on ourselves. Right. We, didn't, we didn't get that one yet. The last topic, <laughs> last topic, and I didn't in advance warn any of you of this question. So it's just going to be a cold, honest answer that you've got to give. Predictions for the upcoming presidential election. What's going to happen? Oh, Biden-Harris. Yeah, love to hear that. John? I think Biden-Harris, the polls, though, to Kathleen's point earlier, I don't trust the polls. I think it's going to be a lot closer than anybody thinks. But I think Biden-Harris will prevail. What do you think, Jay? 
again, if 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 you if you're looking at polls and you're you know you're gauging kind of the the, the tide in the media, you'd have to say it's it's tilting towards Biden and Harris, but. You know, again, I think a lot of us were surprised on election night four years ago. I think there's a, there's a lot of people out there that just nod their head and, you know, smile. When people talk about the election, they don't want to tell people who they're voting for. So nothing would surprise me. Let me, let me say that. Well, we know it's all about the Electoral College, right? So if yeah. you can get states like North Carolina, um, then I think we're in really good shape. If you lose North Carolina, we may not be so uh, correct in our predictions. Now, who would ever have predicted you know, 25 years ago that, that we'd have so many elections that come down to the Electoral College. I remember yeah. when, when Bush and Gore were running against each other, I was talking to my daughter's eighth grade class in Chester, Connecticut, <laughs> and, you know, about, about the election. And the teacher asked me a question just before I got out of the room. She said, what do you think the role of the Electoral College is? And I basically <laughs> browbeat this lady. Yeah, well, that's, that's like Byzantine, you know. <laughs> You know, organization. There's no way yeah. these things are going to end up in it. But you know, what is it? Two of the last three, or three of the last four, or whatever. You know, it's become a whole different game now. It's it's you know the campaign strategies are totally built around the electoral college. It's where they spend their money yep. and where they deploy their people. It's uh it's yeah. a whole whole different game. Well, hey, I want to thank both of you. Um, I was telling John earlier, we're spoiled in the CTLA leadership because we get to hear Kathleen and Jay all the time. But I think this has been a real treat for our podcast listeners. And I want to end on a strong, positive note. So the answer to the question is Biden, Harris in a landslide. Okay. (laughs) That's the end of the podcast. The most important thing is vote. Vote, vote, vote. vote. (laughs) Make make your plan to vote now. That's That's right. That's right. Plan to vote ahead of time. If you're mailing in, mail in early. Thank you, everybody. And we very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org. 